Let's pray. Father, forbid that we would boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which we have been crucified to the world, and the world has been crucified to us. Those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh. Father, there is a death to be died before we die. Otherwise, we will die forever. Jesus died his. He beckons us now to fall into the ground and die with him, that we may be glorified with him and honored by the Father. And so I pray that you would awaken a profound willingness to be dead, to sin, and alive to God. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't believe that unusual coincidences should be used as guidance for life. It's not a mark of healthy mind if one is habitually fascinated by unusual, strange coincidences like the endless parallels between the death of John F. Kennedy and Abraham Lincoln, things like that. Fixation on coincidences is a mark of an imbalanced mind. Nevertheless, (laughs) um, we believe God rules everything, right? He rules all circumstances and all so-called coincidences, and surely it is not wrong to be amazed at some of them and to be encouraged by them if you see God's hand in it clearly enough, which I have in getting ready for this message. The timing and the text for this message this weekend is one of those, my wife reminded me, on Friday, that she likes to call them God incidences, not just coincidences. Let me give you a little background, and then I'll tell you what it is. Um, as I came to prepare this text, which has been appointed for a long time, I mean, you just take the next text in John that comes, that's what you do, no matter what's coming down the pike, and then you see whether the Lord might want to adjust it and apply it in any particular way that's relevant to the to the church. So the context I have in mind as I come to this message is that we're going to go next Sunday evening to the Minneapolis Convention Center. That's right, it's going to hold holds about 3,500 people in that room. We have about 4,500 folks in worship on Sunday morning or so, give or take, and uh, we just love to fill it up with grateful people who look back over 140 years of God's faithfulness to this church and look forward to who knows how many decades and cry down his blessing of preserving grace upon us. That's what that service is about. I think God will be very pleased with us to pull the whole church together 
to do that. And I'm also very aware that one of the aspects of the future we will be laying hold on him for is the blessing of the south site. I'm looking at you, south site with a a campus, land, and, and eventually a, a building of your own, like the downtown has a building, and the north has a building and, and land. And the South Site people have been for five years worshiping and serving in and out of Burnsville High School. And it's been a beautiful thing to watch God grow and bless that church. Now, we have a strategy for impact in the Twin Cities. It's called Treasuring Christ Together, Twin Cities and Beyond. And it has three pieces, multiplying campuses, planting churches, separate independent churches, and caring for the poorest of the poor. We call that the global diaconate. Every, this, is, this is the giving envelope that uh, those of you who are regular here are welcome to have, and those of us who give steadily by writing checks, this is what we use. That second line right there says, Treasuring Christ Together. Treasuring Christ Together is the name of that strategy underneath the mission statement, we exist to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things for the joy of all peoples. And step One step down under mission is this strategy, treasuring Christ together, multiply campuses, plant churches, care for the poor of the poor. So every dollar that goes on that line right there, 5% of it goes to the global diaconate, 5% of it goes to church planning, and 90% of it goes to pay for the North Campus, the downtown, and the, the uh, campus that's coming at the South site. In the last seven years of the existence of Treasuring Christ Together, starting in 2004, you have given just shy of $10 million over and above the budget, which this year is $9 million, to pay for our missionaries in the day-to-day operations and ministries of this church. And we haven't had any big three-year campaign yet to help you do that, and I want to publicly thank you, and next Sunday night, just blow the lid off of gratitude to God for 140 years of that kind of thing that God has done right here in this corner. The church was first built about a block that way, and it burned down, and they bought a building here, which is now gone, but we've been on this corner for over 130 years. Amazing, and now we are in Moundsview, and we are in Burnsville, and, and we would like, we believe it is God's will that we buy a permanent plot of ground and then ASAP put a building on it for the South Campus. I can hear you saying amen at the, at the South Campus. Which means I had in my mind, I'm going to talk about that in this sermon, which I'm doing right now. And I want to tell the people that what we'd like to do is take an offering. There's going to be special envelopes made and take an offering at that meeting and raise a million dollars to buy that land next week. Okay? That's what I'm praying toward. One million dollars raised all at once, give or take a week, whatever you want to do from the mail, 
Um, how in the world is that going to happen? I mean, you haven't got a million dollars lying around. I don't know. But I put in the Star article this week, if you're married, pray with your spouse about how you might participate sacrificially. I said, single people, get along with God and deal with Him. Children, talk to mom and dad about what your part might be. God loves to take the widow's might and make it explode spiritually with effects we can't imagine. So Noel and I were talking, and it's giving you a little glimpse into the way the pipers function, okay? Um, as a pastoral, maybe it might be this way for you, okay? So we don't, we don't have a big pad in our bank account. What we, we don't buy new cars. We buy used cars. Never own a new car. Doesn't seem to me like a good investment. Sorry about that if you disagree. Um, so we buy used cars. We keep them five, six, seven, eight years, and then we buy another one. And the way we buy another one is we never, never borrow money. We always pay cash. We just put away a little bit of money every month to, to replace that thing and fix it. And with too many fixings, just get rid of it and get another one of those for five or six or seven thousand dollars. So that's the way we do car. Which means they're sitting in, in the, uh, the Cornerstone Fund down at the uh, Converge International in an account called Piper Replacement Car Account. And I said to Noel, maybe the Lord would get this, would keep this little Ford. I love our little car. It's just cool. It's got six cylinders and straight shift and just a lot of, I like it. And I said, Maybe the Lord will keep this car running an extra two or three years, and we should go in there and take out a few thousand dollars. And she said, okay, whatever you say. So that's, that's one way to do it. I, I know you don't have liquid money just lying around like that. So a little glimpse for how the only way a million dollars is going to happen out of this church would be strange things. You know, some of you are going to give huge amounts, and somebody's going to give a dollar and God's going to love that dollar. Okay, you're wondering, what's this got to do with coincidences and God incidences? Um, that's what my mind is thinking. I wanted to say this, and so now I've said it, okay? So I'm, I've, I've wanted to, to help you know what's coming, help you get ready, motivate you to think and pray in that direction and, and be at that wonderful service. And, and I knew that my text is John 12. And is there any relationship? Or if I just kind of put a preface on the front of this sermon, I would do something else. And I went to our website to see whether I had ever preached on this text before. I couldn't remember. And I have. September 3rd, 2006. The week before the launch of the South Campus as a launch sermon from this text. Now, I planned that. I chose this text five years ago for the launch of the South Campus. I didn't plan this, that this would be the next text the week before we try to launch ourselves into a million dollars for the South Campus. I, I didn't plan that. And I just, I just stood back when I saw the date on that sermon, read the first half, which is like what I just said now, sort of, to say, bless you, 700 or 800 people, go there, go there, 
move there, bless Burnsville and all the surrounding suburbs, and you went, and you've been there five years, launched out of John 12, 20 to 26. It is relevant, and it is to my mind, I'll say it again, we don't guide our lives by coincidences or God incidences alone. We guide our lives by the Bible and by spiritual wisdom. But when things like that happen, I receive it as a gift of God for my encouragement. And I believe what he's saying to you South people is this is relevant for you. You should think hard about this text. It's parts. And wonder why did John choose it five years ago and God choose it today? Why? You should ask, what might be in it of unusual significance? Okay? So that's the God incidence that has moved me to kind of tremble with expectancy that God has something here for all of us and the South people in particular. So let's go to the text and see what he might have. Let's try to be faithful to the text, and where it seems relevant to me, I'll just I'll point it to the South Campus and the rest of us. It has two parts. Only the second part was, it was in the sermon uh, on September 3rd, 2006. We'll do both parts tonight. 12 to 19 is the first part. 20 to 26 is the second part. First part. I think the point of John 12, 12 to 19 is that Jesus is the king of Israel. He is now no longer running away from it, but embracing it. And he's more than the king of Israel. He's the king of the world. I think that's the point of the first paragraph. And, and Stephen at the leadership here nailed it. We didn't consult about this. He just nailed it with the Greeks. Okay? So thank you, Stephen. So let's start. Verse 19, the the next day a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying, Hosanna, which means salvation or, or save. It's a Hebrew word just transliterated into Greek and then transliterated into English. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So they are calling Jesus King of Israel. This is the the Pharisees' worst nightmare. This is what they're afraid of. Messianic fervor is going to bring Rome down on this people with such force, everybody's going to be destroyed. And here it's happening before their very eyes. Something must be done. They're quoting Psalm 118, verses 25 to 26, which celebrates Jesus now as a fulfillment of that psalm, namely as the Messiah and the King of Israel. Will Jesus, here's the question, will Jesus accept it in chapter 6, verse 15, after he had fed the 5,000 and they wanted to come and make him king? He headed for the hills, prayed all night up there. He got away from that as soon as he could. Will he do it here? And you, you know the answer. Let's read it. Verse 14, Jesus found a donkey, a young donkey, and sat on it just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, 
But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered, just like he said, I'll bring to your remembrance. They remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So the answer is no, he does not run away. He, in fact, intensifies it by fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, sitting on a donkey, receiving their praises, walking on those, those palm branches and saying, you are right by his action. Now, notice how John, the writer, weaves his story together in a way to make plain that this kingship which they're declaring and Jesus is receiving is bigger than the kingship of Israel. This is really remarkable how he does this. It's not local, it's not Jewish, it's not tribal, it's world. He's king of the world. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. Now what an odd thing to say. They're in Jerusalem. People have come to the Passover. Cosmos, the word they used. The world has gone after him. And the next thing you see is Greeks show up. That's not an accident. That is not an accident. That is just what we have seen. So let's read that. Verse 20. This is now moving into the second part of the text, which I did preach on September 3rd. 2006. Now, among those who went up to Jerusalem at the feast were some Greeks. So, these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, which is a Gentile-oriented place in itself, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So, this is amazing. Greeks show up in John's flow of thought, because John is choosing what he puts together here, and it's right after the Pharisees say, the world has gone after him. Here's some Greeks that want to see Jesus. Greeks, that's out of the blue in this gospel. What are they doing here? Well, God-fearers who are going to come to Jerusalem on pilgrimage, and John says, I'll make this point really clear. <laughs> These Pharisees seem to always be I mean, in these recent days, are speaking more than they know. It's better for one man to die for the nation that the whole nation be swept away. And he didn't know what he was saying, but he was saying incredible truth. And now they're saying, the whole world's gone after him. And he didn't know what he was saying, but now John knows what he's saying. It's true. It's true. That last song that we sang, and I don't know what, we sang it south and north, but this, this this is all nations going on here. So, God's Word so far to us, to South Campus, North Campus, God's Word so far is Jesus really is the Messiah. Jesus really is the King of Israel. He now is endorsing, blessing, and signifying it by His action. And He is more than the King of Israel. He is the King of the world. 
The whole world has gone after him. Here's, here come some Greeks as first fruits to show what this is all about. Therefore, Bethlehem, he is the king over Moundsview and Minneapolis and Burnsville and Lakeville and every other suburb and every other city and every other country. He owns the nations and he owns the neighborhoods. I believe he smiles upon this imperfect church, this imperfect staff, who cried to him day and night that our imperfect strategies would be blessed with great mercy and grace like we want to reach those southern suburbs with this message. We think a stable, strong center there for that kind of spreading would be good. And they've been, you've been very patient. Which may be why the rest of this text was chosen for five years ago. All this sounds very triumphant, very wonderful. And then come the words of Jesus in response to the request of the Greeks to see him. Question, does he give them what they want? We would see Jesus. Do they? Hmm. We don't know whether they connect physically. What we know is that Jesus' response to that request was to reveal himself to them the same way he reveals himself to us. I think probably that's why it happens this way. Because we might say, oh yeah, I'd like to see Jesus too. And look, as soon as he asked, Jesus said, here I am. Shake my hand, what do you want? Sign a book. He, he didn't do any of that. Instead, he spoke about what was about to happen. You want to know me? You want to see me? I'll tell you what to watch for. So that's where we are now in this text. Verse 23. So there are the Greeks who want to see Jesus. Here's the truth for Greeks. Here's the truth that matters for Bethlehem, South Campus. South Site on its way to campus. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's the first thing he says in response to. They want to see you. I'm going to be gl- I'm on my way to glory. I'm going to be so glorious. They will want to see me. Oh, yes, they will want to see me. I, the hour of my glorification is at hand. Every knee will bow. And when they see me, they will want to be identified with me. However, it's not going to happen the way you think. Glory over the horizon five or six days from now, 
not going to happen the way you think. So let's see if you want to be identified with me. Let's see if you want to follow me and serve me. Okay, I'll just talk to you for a moment about me and about what it means for us to see each other. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but remains by itself. But if, if it dies, it bears much fruit, which is really clear. We know what he's talking about. I am headed for glory. My glorification is just, I can taste it. I'm going to be sustained by the joy set before me. But on the way, I must be like a grain that falls into the ground and dies. Otherwise, nobody's going with me to glory. If I don't die, I can't have Greeks with me, can't have Jews with me, can't have Americans, suburbanites who live south. I I can't have anybody with me. No fruit is going to come unless this seed dies. That's what he's saying to the Greeks. Know me, see me this way. If I leave the road that I'm on now to Calvary, if I leave that road, a seed remains in the bag and not on the ground and there's no fruit and no salvation. But if I go, if I finish my mission, and I'm like a seed that's, that's crushed and put in the ground, I will be glorified. The Father will raise me up and give me a name of every name that at the name of me every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that I am Lord to the glory of God the Father, including those Greeks and all those people who live south. So that's the truth about Jesus that he's revealing to the, to the Greeks and to us. A truth about him now is going to become a truth about them or us. Verse 25. He who loves his life loses it. He's not talking about himself merely anymore, is he? The seed, right after saying, I will be glorified, is clearly, I must die so that I can bear fruit. Now, you want to identify with me? If you want to be a part of this, this is your life. He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world, that's what it will look like, that's what it means, Hate your life in this world means you'll do things and people say, I don't get that. Hate your life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where? To Gethsemane and Golgotha. And where I am, there will my servant also be. Where? in the presence of my Father on the other side, having walked with me through the grave. Whoever would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross, die with me. Those who have belonged to Christ have crucified the flesh. I am crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God. To be a Christian is to have died. Come with me to Golgotha. 
If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So the truth about himself, in the next hours, I will be like a seed that dies in the ground, and when I rise, I will bear global fruit. That's the truth about himself. Immediately becomes, for those who want to see him, their life. You can't just look at Jesus kind of interesting. Well, that's kind of interesting. To see Jesus is to be driven away in unbelief or to be drawn into imitation. His death for our salvation becomes His design for our imitation. Two things seem obvious to me here. One is, this is hard. And the other is, this is glorious. And I don't want you to miss either one. South Campus, this is hard. South Campus, this is glorious. Harder for you than it was north. Maybe, maybe more glorious in the end. As a church, we are, we're going to stretch. We're going to die to some things. Stretch to buy a gift for those who worship South. As individuals, you may be hearing, and you should hear this as applying to you in ways no connection with South Campus at all. Just, there is a dying going on in your life right now that you could escape if you escaped Jesus. If you left Him, you could be done with this dying. And so daily, Embracing Him is embracing this path of, of suffering, this path of death. Maybe small, maybe big. You, you feel that right now. I'm talking church, you're thinking marriage, child, health, job. I want us to see both the hard and the glorious. So let me just name them for you. Won't spend long because it's pretty obvious. Four hard things, four glorious things. And the intent is for the South Side people to hear the hard things and say, maybe that's why this text is appointed for us. And then to hear the glorious things and say, it's coming. It's going to be glorious. God's going to work. And for your own individual life. Own the hard, hear the hard, and then be sustained by the glorious. Let me name the hard and name the glorious. Here are the hard things in this text. Verse 24, the grain of wheat must die. Unless a grain of wheat fall into the ground and die, that's hard. Dying is hard. Dying physical death is hard. Dying short of that. Paul said, I die every day, 1 Corinthians. He said, I die every day. 
That means there was something tugging at him that he said no to that would have made his life a little softer, a little easier, that wouldn't have been Christ-honoring, and he just said no to it. He cut it. He killed it. He does it every day. He's always killing sin, lest sin would be killing him, Romans 8, 13. So that's number one, verse 24, dying like a seed in the ground is not easy. Number two, verse 25, Jesus calls us to hate our lives in this world. He who loves his life loses it. That is, if you pamper yourself and strategize always for comfort and security, you're going to lose it. He who who loves, loves his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world. Keep that in mind. You don't hate your life ultimately when you hate your life in this world. You're doing yourself the best favor imaginable to hate your life in this world, according to the glorious things promised here. So that's hard thing number two. Hate your life in this world. In other words, you don't buy your best life now. It's not your best life now. It's hard. Best life later. Big time making this life worth anything, you're going to have it. Number three, verse 26a, Jesus calls us to follow him where? On the Calvary Road, leading to death. If anyone serves me, he will let him follow me. And he's on his way to Calvary, as he says that. That's hard. To get on the Calvary Road and walk towards pain is hard. Get in a relationship and, and you know, if I pursue this, if I say what I need to say, it's going to be hard. It's not going to go well. They're not going to understand. Do you keep on the road? Or you say, no, 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 I'm not going to do that. Number four, verse 26, second half of the verse, he calls us to serve him. If anyone serves me, Serving Jesus in a world of power grabbing, becoming a servant, a lowly servant in a world that prizes power and prestige, that's not easy. Servanthood is not prized in this world of ours. Jesus prizes it, but the world doesn't. It's not, not easy. It's hard. So that's what it means to be a Christian. It's hard to die. It's hard to hate your life in this world. It's hard to follow Jesus on the road that leads to the cross. And it's hard to serve in a world of power. Which is why Jesus said in Matthew 7, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. This is no surprise. We, we know our Bible. Being a Christian is hard. However, he doesn't call you to gut it out every day. Oh, hard life. Eeyore, puddle glum, no way. Hard does not equal joyless. Hear me strong. Hard does not equal joyless. So what are the glorious things that are right beside the hard things? Here, there's four of them. Number one, verse 24. Yes, the seed must die. What happens if it dies? 
it bears much fruit. You will never die in vain. You won't make any sacrifice in vain if you do it for Christ's glory and for the love of people. Ever. It may cost you your life and it won't be in vain. It may cost you your little, little car account and it won't be in vain. That's number one. Bear much fruit. You, your li- you, want you, you want your life to bear fruit? Die. Number two. Yes, we love our life. We lose it if we love it. Yes, we must hate our life in this world. But what, what's the promise? If you do, you keep it to eternal life. He who hates his life in this world keeps it to eternal life. We're not striking a bad deal here. There is no such thing in the Bible as ultimate self-denial. Well, if you agree with that, there is plenty of in this world self-denial. That's what it says. Hate your life in this world. But you talk about what's coming right around the corner. What's coming? Untold glory is coming. Joy. Repayment, 1,000, 10,000 fold for every sacrifice made for Jesus in this world. This slight momentary affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. This is not a bad deal. It just looks that way to the world. That's why it's called hate. Number three, we must follow him to Calvary. But what happens if we do? Where I am, there my servant shall be. No place I want to be other than there. Wherever, in the grave, then out of the grave, wherever he is, I want to be there. Son of God, King of kings, Lord of lords, infinitely loving, infinitely caring, infinitely wise, infinitely powerful, arms around his children. I want to be there. And he says, just follow me to Golgotha and you'll be there. Okay, that's a good deal. Number four. Yes, we must become servants, lowly, foot-washing, loving, self-denying, servants, slaves. What happens if we do? Verse 26, second half of the verse. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. A weight of glory, C.S. Lewis called it, to hear the words, well done good and faithful servant. A a weight of glory you could hardly imagine that the creator of the universe would look upon you in your imperfection and honor you. I mean, I'm going to honor him, right? I'm going to honor Jesus. That's my life calling. I'm going to honor Jesus. And here it says, no, that's not all that's going to happen. You sit at table, Luke 12. He takes a towel, puts it around himself at the last day, and serves you. So, South Campus, 
I think I chose this text five years ago because I thought it would be hard to do what you're doing. And it, it, it has its hard parts. But oh, may we all, in our hardness, embrace the glories. I'll name them one more time and we'll stop. We die. We hate our lives in this world. We follow Jesus to Calvary, and we become servants. The Christian life is hard. Don't try to make it anything else. It's hard. However, four glories. Number one, we bear much fruit. We keep our lives for eternal life. We join Jesus in His glory and are where He is. And fourth, the Father honors us. That's the way I want to live my remaining life. I don't want from 65 to 70 or whatever God gives me, a year or 15 years, I I don't want it to be anything different from that. I think when you get old, you tend to soften because everybody tells you, you've, you've worked hard now, take it easy. Easy. This is not, what, Christian until you're 65? And then another kind of Christianity? Like it's not hard between 65 and 85? God forbid. So I want, I want this kind of fruitfulness. I want this kind of significant. I want to bear fruit. I want to be more fruitful between now and 70 than at any five-year period of my life. More fruitful. More people helped. More people saved. More people built up. More marriages reconciled. More children brought home to Jesus. More missionaries sent. More justice done. More, more, more. South, north, downtown. More. I hope hope that's what you feel when you hear Jesus talk like this. Let me say that key sentence again. Jesus would say, my dying for your salvation is my design for your imitation. If you want to come to him as Savior, you're dying for me, you're loving me, you're taking my place. He says, yes, yes, I am, but you don't do an end run around the cross. You come with me and identify with me in the cross. You die to sin. You live to righteousness. And then we're together forever. I pay the price for the salvation. I give the strength for the imitation. It won't be easy, but it will be significant. For your life, and I pray for treasuring Christ together. I think the Lord has just begun to bless us. Ten churches planted in the last seven years. Let's double it in the next seven years. From three anchor places in the Twin Cities and maybe more. I do hope, I'm looking at every one of us now, South Campus, North Campus, downtown, I would like to be together with you to tell God how thankful we are Sunday night, November 20th. Let's pray.
Father, I, I believe you have things to say to the South Campus, in particular out of this text, that I probably haven't said. So I commend them to you and us together with them to serve them well in these critical days. And I ask for the miracle, Lord. I publicly ask for the miracle of a million dollars to buy some land in the next couple of weeks. And Lord, for all those who are sitting in these three locations right now thinking, I can hardly get my mind around that because my personal problems are so huge. Would you touch them, love them, bless them, and make them know nothing is hard in vain. Nothing is hard in vain. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.